Lord, we just want to give you all the glory and all the praise for what you've done through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, and the power of your Word. We praise you and worship you, Lord. May the songs that we sing be the manifest evidence that we love you and we serve you and the gratitude that we have for what Christ has done. Teach us your truth today, Lord. I pray that your word would come to us in power. Your spirit would move in us to sanctify us and to make us new. For those who don't know you, we ask that you'd move in their hearts. Lord, touch them, help them understand the gospel, have faith in Christ, turning from their sin, following after him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It is so good to be back with you today. I have to tell you, no matter where I go, where I preach, I always have this lingering desire to be back with my family and worship with you and study God's Word with you. So good to be here, and it's good to be kicking off our missions week. This is something that we hope to get in rotation as time goes on, that this becomes something pretty normal for us and that we become more and more a part of what God is doing worldwide. I do want to introduce to you some of our special guests this week. We did have on the piano, you heard, saw this piano play up here. That was Kevin Flerrell. Kevin, where did you end up sitting down? There's Kevin. Kevin, stand up. Thank you for doing that. What a, what a wonderful blessing to have you. Kevin lives in Jestetten, in, down in the south of Germany, but he's mainly ministering in Switzerland. So he likes to wear his Swiss stuff, and you'll see Kevin around. He's already spoken to our youth. He's going to be speaking to us on several occasions over the next few weeks and actually uh, playing piano for us, I think, for three or four weeks, I think. So, Kevin, thank you so much. I think the Edwards are already here. Uh, here's Wayne Edwards. Wayne and Becca. I think Becca's here as well. Just left. So Wayne and Becca and Amy will be here as well uh, for the rest of the week. So uh, let's welcome Kevin. Uh, uh, thank you, or not Kevin, uh, Wayne. Yeah. And we'll also be having um, our missionary, Pramin and Ashwin, his wife Ashwin Choi. They'll be coming this week. And uh, also Jason and Karen Allen, they'll be here for the conference as well. So uh, great, great, very special time. Uh, thank you so much, Wayne and Amy, for coming, and Becca and Kevin and uh, the Choi's and Allen's. will be such a great time to fellowship and worship with you. Today is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to preach from several passages. You know, the truth is that expository preaching... This is going to be a surprise to some of you. Expository or expositional preaching does not automatically mean verse by verse through books. Did you know this? Little, 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 give you a little lesson on homiletics. Homiletics is the study of preaching. Give you a little homiletical lesson. A little aside here. Exposit or expositional just means the truth comes from or is driven by the Word of God. When we talk about verse by verse through books... Technically, that is called Lectio Continua, and most expositional preachers preach Lectio Continua. But you can preach from the text or from several texts, and the passage or the sermon determine the truth and the meaning of the sermon, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at several texts. We're going to take a subject. This is more like systematic theology. We're going to take a subject, and the subject is, how does a local church do missions? And we're going to see what the Bible says. We're going to look at one particular passage a little more specifically, but we're going to look at several passages. So you're going to be flipping through your Bible a little bit today as we look at these things. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. This is where we see really the beginning of a foreign missions movement. Although the missionary effort had really 
started with the Old Testament and what we see with the people in the Old Testament. Here we see the New Testament church really starting to move and obey the words of Christ and the heart of God for the nations. Now, just to set this up, Jesus had repeated, you'll remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had repeated, and for the few different words, His great commission. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, how do they do that? And here in Acts 13, we have a starting place to their missions efforts abroad. And this just sets the stage. Paul, also known as Saul, had been converted. He had gone into the wilderness, and I believe he learned from Jesus himself those three years. He did what all the other apostles did. He learned from Jesus himself. He was discipled by Jesus himself. And then he came back and he began to minister. He spent some time ministering, probably at least a year there in Antioch as one of the pastors, and perhaps even longer there as an elder, a pastor there at the church alongside four other elders. And he would be there preaching as the main preacher probably for at least that year, maybe longer. And this is where Acts 13 picks up. Let me read to you Acts 13 there, beginning in verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the Word of God. Well, off they went, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, first couple of missionaries to a foreign land. Paul said later about his ministry and about doing this, his ambition was to preach the gospel. Interestingly, they did not have this sense that we see it's all too common today among people here in America, but also abroad, this sense of manifest destiny that they're supposed to plant churches. No, they, their ambition, their desire was simply to preach the gospel. Now, sometimes a church was started, sometimes they were beaten and kicked out of the city. They had no insight to what God's sovereign plan was and where churches would pop up and where they would find converts and where they would find a person of peace. In fact, that's what they did. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do, and that is to go to these communities and preach the gospel. And if you found a person of peace, a, a man of peace, someone who received the gospel and gave them audience, if you found someone like that, you could stay and preach the gospel. These men did not have some sort of urban mandate or some unbiblical different gospel there to preach to these people or that people, and various people sort of got different messages. No, they had as their ambition to preach the gospel to all people. And so they left. Paul and Barnabas, they first went to an island, the island of Cyprus, and then they sailed across to what we know as modern-day Turkey, and they began evangelizing from city to city. They ended up in a city called Lystra. There the people beat them. In fact, they beat Paul so severely they drug what they thought was his corpse outside of the city to rot. Now, Paul woke up, he went back to Antioch, he reported what his mission was, and within a few months he went back to Lystra to preach the gospel again. By the way, there's no 
evidence that there was any church planted in Lystra. But some amazing things happened in Lystra. One of the main things was he converted this young man named, or God converted through Paul, this young man named Timothy. Of course, that would become Paul's assistant and later on the pastor at Ephesus. Now, this was the launch of foreign missions. Now, you need to understand, listen very carefully, they, they were not, quote-unquote, launching the missions movement. They prayed and planned and sent these guys, but this was not just some sort of contrived new thing that they were coming up with. They were just doing what they knew the church should be doing. The missionary efforts of a church is not some sort of extra ministry that you come up with and drum up with and sort of optional part. It is part and par parcel to obeying Jesus. This is the church. If, if a church is supposed to be a church, if a Christian is supposed to be a Christian inside the church, we are involved in missions. There is no option. It is mandated to us by Jesus Himself. No debate, no discussion about timing, no thoughts of, well, maybe we ought to get a few more people in the church, or maybe we need some more money, or, or perhaps we need to get more people saved in our community and then worry about people outside our community. No, they simply were doing what Christ had commanded. Well, where are we going to go in our study of this subject? Well, first, we're going to look at this idea of calling. That's really the first step. How is one called to, in the church to be a missionary? What happens? And then we'll look briefly at this passage, the one I just read. And then finally, we're just going to mention some other passages to see what is our role? What about the rest of us? What are, what's a regular church member supposed to do in regard to foreign missions? What's my duty? What's your duty? You'll be surprised to know every single Christian has something to offer in terms of foreign missions. All right, you'll notice in the passage I just read, this effort, this vision to become missionaries were first, these first of all, these men first of all were pastors. That is to say, they were the elders of that church there at Antioch. So before we can go into missions and before we can talk about who's called into mission work, we need to qualify those actually called to lead the missionary work. If you're writing notes, maybe you want to write this down. Number one, the call of a pastor. The call of a pastor. How is a pastor called? These were the pastors of the church. So we need to know if they're leading the missions team, if they're the ones that go on mission trips, uh, who are these guys and how were they called? So flip over to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, there are several passages that discuss the, the prerequisites, the, the calling of pastors. 1 Peter 5, Titus chapter 1, 2 Timothy 4, among others. But you usually start right here in 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 says this, the say, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Well, this gives us the first way a guy is called into ministry, called to become an elder. He is called, number one, emotionally. I don't put that on the notes, they're not on the screen, but put that in your notes. He is called emotionally. That word aspires there is a strong word. It's, it strives, it craves, it, it's a deep longing. He has a deep longing. We have an ESV later on. He desires, it says, a noble tack. He hopes for, he wishes, he yearns. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, he not only was the most dominant biblical voice in his century, he also taught many young men and had young men come and learn from him. He told these young men, quote, there must be an irresistible, 
overwhelming craving and raging thirst for telling others what God has done. He said to his students, if any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king in the name of heaven, let him go his way. Young men, look in your hearts, he says. Do you have this craving? Do you have this calling? Do you have this deep desire? Can you do nothing else? Maybe physically there are many options out there, but as you look at your heart, as you sense in your heart and and look at what God is speaking to you about, you realize, I can do nothing else but become a preacher of the gospel. He says, looking at your heart, you should ask, why do you have this desire? Is it because I want to be influential? Is it because just I'm tired of my current job? Is it because nothing else has worked out? Or is it because I'm floored by what God has done for me in Jesus Christ and I want to give my life to telling others about it. In the end, repeating Paul's intent here, Spurgeon said, there must be an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. In other words, he must be called emotionally. He must have a sense of divine calling that God has convinced him to do this. Now, I need to stop here and mention this. This is where most people stop when it comes to the call of pastor. Most in today's version of American Christianity stop right there. This is the only thing that's required to be in ministry. There's a personal sense of calling, a personal desire. No testing, no doctrine, no affirmation, no evaluation, nothing. Desire or some sense of divine calling is all that's required, and we're supposed to just let these people who tell us that they've been called, we're supposed to let them do whatever they want in terms of being a pastor. I must say, this has devastated churches and done irreparable damage to the kingdom, the high calling of pastor elder. Now, what if we did this in any other profession? What if the only prerequisite to being a doctor is you just really felt deeply that God wants you to be a doctor? We just give you the keys to a practice, come work on us. What if, what if we did that to people in the entertainment industry, sports industry? You really feel God is calling you to be a running back for the New England Patriots. Here you go. I dare say it would destroy the entertainment industry. Now, again, I'm not denying that at all that a person must feel called. In fact, this is my point. And what's Paul's point here out of he's speaking to Timothy? As you think about elders, as people come on as pastors, this, this is sort of the starting point. They must feel that divine call. They must have that emotional call to ministry. It's absolutely ne- necessary, but it doesn't stop there. There must be some other things as a part of that call. What else must be there. Well, there must be a scriptural call. There's a scriptural standard, so he must be called, secondly, scripturally. And by that, I mean he must meet a certain scriptural standard. He must live up to what Scripture says a pastor or elder must be. Verse 2, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, 
or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, this message is not about ultimately the call of pastoring, so we're not going to go through each one of these things. Paul rephrases some of these things in some of his other letters. Peter mentions some of these things. John even talks about these things, the theological qualifications for church leadership. You see these things mentioned all over the place, even from Jesus Himself talking about the kind of people who lead them and to whom they should listen, who is qualified to be pastor. One of the most controversial qualifications, at least nowadays, is found in 1 Timothy 2.12. Paul says he limits the role of pastor-elder to men. He does not allow women to teach authoritatively. Interestingly, for more than 1,900 years, the church was pretty unified with very few exceptions that they agreed with Paul on this, but the feminist movement happened and now suddenly we're more sophisticated than Paul in 1900 years of church history. The point is that a pastor must live up to what the Bible says he should be. If a person's called, he's living up to these standards. He's living up to these qualifications. You'll notice that these qualifications mostly are not about skills, not about leadership, not about the ability to organize a team. It's mostly about personal character. In fact, the only skill that's mentioned is able to teach, and he doesn't even specify that he's able to teach the whole congregation, or is it just discipleship or groups of people? It just has to be someone who has some skill in taking the Word of God to people. And that makes sense. It makes sense with that original desire, that emotional calling that he would desire to get the Word of God out. Someone can qualify, by the way, someone can qualify scripturally. They could meet those standards scripturally, but not have that inner divine sense of calling. It happens all the time. In fact, I would hope that would be true for all the men of our church, that they would qualify in terms of character, even in that skill to take the Word of God to people. I would hope that most of our men would qualify for that, but not, all, not everyone has that emotional calling. So there is, there, there is that scriptural call, there is that emotional call. How else is a pastor, teacher, elder called? Look again at verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Third part of the calling is that he's called effectively. By this I mean there must be evidence. There must be evidence of the effect of his ministry already in the church. He must already be an effective minister doing things in the church. There must be empirical evidence that this man is qualified. When the pastors stand up and, and announce the name of a new elder, people must say, oh, oh, that makes sense. Or maybe even better, oh, I thought he was already an elder. Because I see him ministering and loving and cherishing God's Word and even teaching and discipling people. This man must not be, in the old King James, I think it says, he must not be a novice. It must be evident maturity. You don't just throw someone who's immature into the leadership of a church. There must be evidence of his maturity, evidence of, of his humility. It says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up. I'm sure you've known of pastors, church leaders, who take great pride in having authority, bossing people around. That's what immature people do, Paul says. They become puffed up with conceit. 
and thereby fall into the condemnation of the devil. Well, this leads us to the fourth aspect of calling. He must also be called collectively. In 2 Timothy 4, you remember Paul says there at the beginning, he says, preach the word, then down in 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So somehow, people, these people are able to get rid of preachers and put in preachers that they want. They're able to get rid of faithful pastors, faithful preachers of the Word, and they're able, able to put in the kind of preachers that aren't faithful to the Word because they want to have their ears tickled. Maybe this happens passively, just leaving a church and going to the one that they feel like is a little bit better, or maybe they do it actively by actually firing a, church, a pastor and putting someone in that they want. And various denominations do this in different ways, but with almost every Protestant denomination, there's some way that the people of the church, the people in the pew, the congregations are responsible for who preaches in the pulpit. Now, there are exceptions, but in most Protestant denominations, there is some way in which the people are re held responsible for ultimately who are their preachers. This is right in line with Jesus' own instruction, beginning in Matthew 17, about false teachers. We should not suffer these wolves in sheep's clothing. John told the church at Ephesus to test the spirits. It's clear there, this is not some mystical activity, mystical spiritual act activity. It's all about who we allow to have spiritual authority, who we allow to teach us. Paul told the churches in Galatia to test the preachers against the truth of the gospel and vehemently reject anyone, even if it's he himself, to come back who doesn't preach the gospel. So this is the final and really the consummation of a pastor's calling. A pastor is called emotionally. He's called scripturally. He's called effectively. But then the church is the one that makes this real. And by the way, he's not called unless the church says that. He's not technically, if he's not acting as an elder of a church, a pastor of a church, he, he may feel called. He may be doing lots of ministry. He may be doing a lot of great ministry. But until a church says, we want you to have this authority, this role in the church, he is not called in terms of church calling. The church makes this real. The church confirms all these other callings, and that's sort of the final stamp of approval. And that man is called. They lay their hands on him, and he comes in and becomes a part of the pastors of a church. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why in the world, Pastor John, are you telling us about a pastor's calling? I'm not called to be a pastor. Well, I'm glad you asked. Number two, the commission of a missionary. How then is a missionary made? How are missionaries made? Well, again, I have to mention what many people assume. What most people assume is that the call of a missionary is just between them and God. God told me. The church is, well, I guess if they, God told him, we ought to, we have to send him out, make him a missionary. That's not at all what happens here, is it? What do we read back there in Acts 13? Go back there again. They're in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. They fasted, they prayed. These are the elders of the church. They laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, we need to be careful because sometimes we come to narrative or story in the Bible, and it's not prescription, but simply description. It may not be telling us this is what we're supposed to do. It may just be telling us what they did. But as you read, like what I just talked about, the call of a pastor, as you read what they did in the rest of the book of Acts, as you read the rest of the New Testament, really what you find out is this, this practice, what they did here, coheres perfectly with these things. This seems to be exactly the way a church is expected to call its missionaries. So again, you might want to write down a couple things under this. So the commission of a missionary is, first of all, by the pastors. You see this happens. These men, these five elders, these pastors who Luke calls them prophets and teachers, these leaders of the church, they're, they're together. Use kind of that old word prophet as being teacher. One was an apostle, actually. These men had been tested. They been, had been tried. They had been proven. They had passed the test of pastor. They were truly called. The church had, in some way or another, put them in charge. They were called emotionally, scripturally, effectively, collectively. They led the church at Antioch. They spent time, considerable time, praying and fasting and thinking about how the church would lead. They taught the church. And as they were communing like this in the Spirit, the Spirit began to bring to their hearts all the commands of Christ, specifically the commands to go to the nations and tell the nations. The Spirit speaks to them about how they are going to obey this command. And by the way, this is primarily how the Spirit works in our lives, isn't it? It's not so much about new revelation or having some kind of dream or something like that. The, the Spirit works by taking the Word of God and showing you how to obey. There's a young man, a young Japanese man who's pretty new to the island that I've been speaking with a little bit. He cuts my hair. And uh, I've been talking to him kind of on and off about the gospel, and I don't know how much he really understands. But I just got convicted the last time I got a haircut I really need to just lay it out for him as clearly as possible. And I just prayed all the way, Lord, just give me an opportunity. Well, he starts cutting my hair, and I notice there's these little strings on his wrist. And I said, hey, what are those strings? He said, oh, my wife, she's local, and she's really into all the palm reading and all the stuff. And he said, do you do that at your church? No, we don't do that. As a matter of fact, but it gave me the perfect opportunity to explain the gospel. That's what the Spirit did right there to those men. They, they had the commands. They had the Word of God already plainly revealed. Jesus had said, you're going to be my witnesses to the uttermost. And as they were praying and thinking and communing in the Spirit, the Spirit brings to them, to their minds, those commands and how they're going to obey it. And they come up with this way. We're going to take two of our own, our men who've been tested, who preached the gospel here for a year or more. We're going to lay our hands on them, and then we're going to send them away to take the gospel to the uttermost. Now, this is the first idea. At, their center, at the center of their mission's work, at the center of the church's mission work is the pastors. And that is certainly not to say you can't have a missions team. You can't rope in other people. I'm going to get to this even more toward the end. 
In fact, this whole effort is led by Chuck Lind and some others who've come along and helped him out and putting this whole conference together. So everyone's involved, but it has the pastor's desires, it has the pastor's hopes. The pastors are involved. Why? Because the very definition of the church is to go, it's to be a part of God's love for the nations. So it's by the pastors. By the way, this also helps us in terms of what good missions agencies should do. A good and biblical mission agency comes alongside the church to help the church obey the command of Christ, to help the church send out missionaries. Now, I'll say this, but thanks be to God, there's a lot of great missions agencies out there. The three that we support, Wycliffe, Ambassadors for Christ and the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, these all, that's their desire. Their desire is not to take missions away from churches, but to come alongside and assist churches carry out these commands. Foreign missions is a ministry of the local church, and as such, it is led by the pastors. What else? The commissioning of a missionary is also of the pastors. That is to say, capital M missionaries are pastors. What do I mean by capital M missionaries? I'm talking about those who do exactly what we see Paul and Barnabas doing. They're pastors. They are elders of a church. They've passed all the tests of elder. They've been called in those four ways. They've been proven. Their love for the church, their ability to lead, their passion for the gospel, their, their skill at giving the gospel to others is, is proven. It's there. And now, under the auspices of the church, they're, they're going to take that message and take that and, and give it to the world. And this makes perfect sense. You don't want someone who's a novice in theology going to teach the world theology. You don't want an immature person going out to hard places and facing difficult times and failing to represent Christ well and the church well. You don't want someone who has little knowledge or love for the local church to go out and, and, and if God blesses, to plant a church who doesn't really care for churches, who doesn't really love the church. You, you need someone who loves the church, who's worked in the church, who understands the church. Again, sadly, this is so often what happens in modern missions. We, we fail to see that the lead missionaries should be pastors, tested, proven, full of character, full of the Spirit, love, love the church, love the Word of God. The last thing you want to do as a church is send baby Christians out to wolves. Again, so often we act like the call of missionaries completely separate. It's this sort of different thing, and some young man comes up, and we say, all right, go, and the man is a failure. Now, the mission effort here in Acts 13, I believe, is a template for, it, for us. We send those who are proven, those who are tested. They send, we send the pastors out, those qualified to be pastors out into the world. I don't want to be all negative here. This is the pattern we're after. This is what we're going for. Our church currently has one missionary, Pramin Choi. That's the one that we support. The reason our elders we decided to support and give to uh, Pramin's ministry is because we believe he passes the test of elder, of pastor. We believe if he were on this island, he's in Fiji, if he were on this island, he would be another one of the elders in our church. By the way, just want to make a, a little... Uh, parenthetic announcement. 
We're going to be taking a special offering for some projects for him, and uh, just mark that in your mind. If you uh, getting your tax return or something's happening where you're able to, to designate to these projects. Permen's going to present to us some special project, a, a main special project, some other projects as well, and uh, we're going to give you opportunity to, to give to that. But we support him because he qualifies, and as we got to know him over several years, we decided as elders, you know what? He's one of us. He's one of us, and, and let's make him one of our official missionaries. Now, again, you might be saying, well, hang on a second, Pastor John. There's a lot of other people who aren't pastors who go out on mission field. And what about, again, what about me? I, I don't feel called to be a pastor. I don't, I don't feel called to, to go through all that, like what you described up there. Well, this brings us to point number three, the commitment of a church. As we read about that early church, we see three basic commitments. You've probably heard these before in some other way. Three basic commitments that any and all church members should carry out. Now, you have limitations. We all have limitations. Sometimes it's health. But a lot of times those limitations shouldn't stop us. In fact, all, all of us, every single person in this room is called to do all three of these things. What are these three things? Number one, we are to go. Did you know that? I know what a lot of people think of church ministry like. They, they, they see all these different ministries. You have the, you know, maybe helping hands ministry or the, or the ministry to students or now you have the ministry to missions and you kind of think, well, I'm just not going to choose that one. Did you know that that's not an option for us? As believers, we don't have an option to say, you know, I'm just not going to choose to be involved in missions. That's basically saying, I choose not to obey Jesus. No, we all should be a part of going out to the world. Now, you may not go out like a pastor would and preach the gospel. A lot of times you won't even know the language, but you can go. And we see this in the Bible. In fact, we see some very, very, very important people in the Bible who were not pastors, but they came alongside the missionaries, traveled with them, helped them go out into the world. The first one is the one from whom we're reading right here in Acts 13. It's Dr. Luke. I mean, he wrote two books of the Bible. He wrote the second most amount in the New Testament behind Paul. I mean, here's Dr. Luke. He was not an apostle. He was not a pastor. As far as we can tell, he never pastored any church anywhere. But he played a huge role in the early missions. Maybe he wasn't technically capital M missionary, but he came along and God used him mightily. Another one very similar to Luke would be John Mark. We, again, do not have any evidence that John Mark ended up as a pastor or a missionary or someone like that, but he helped Barnabas. Later, he helped Peter, and eventually, under their authority, under their guidance, he wrote the book of Mark, vital to that early missions effort. What about that couple, Aquila and Priscilla, this couple who had a tent-making business, much like Paul's Centered, that tent-making business was centered in Corinth, most likely, and they used that business to, to, to host traveling missionaries, to disciple young people, disciple young men as they came through. They traveled around that region. They supported the work of the missionaries. They hosted even a church in their own home. Again, there's no evidence that either one of them were designated as pastors of the church or leaders in any way, but they were used in a massive way in the effort of 
missions. I can think of several of people in our own room. I think of Keith and Jane Stelzer, longtime supporters of ministry. Peter and Carolyn Moss, of course, Chuck and Andrea Lynn. We do support their ministry at Wycliffe because fundamentally that's what their job is, is getting, recruiting, supporting missionaries. They really are. Modern day, I think you would be surprised to find out a Chuck and Andrea sort of modern day Aquila and Priscilla leading, discipling, helping, finding missionaries. And we're so blessed to support that ministry. Well, how do you fit in? Well, folks, just start going. Become a part. Ask any of these folks that I just mentioned, and they'll tell you, well, I just, it probably started with a mission trip or being on the mission field or, or seeing some sort of effort done in the name of Christ in the foreign mission context. Ask Pastor Ryan. He's like Timothy and Titus. These were a couple helpers who came along a mission trip and decided, I think God is moving in my heart. Ryan and I were literally carrying stuff. You were speaking in Chinese. I wasn't. But we were carrying stuff for the missionary. I was carrying water purifying systems for, for the missionary as he evangelized these people. And I just sit there, not saying anything, but carrying all the stuff. Do stuff like that, and God will begin to speak to your heart. And you'll find out, this is how I fit in in God's massive kingdom work. Now, this is what this missionary this missions team is doing, they're, they're going to help us find ways, and we're going to be providing as things start to open up across the world, they're going to be providing more and more opportunities for you to actually go. I, I really, I really want to emphasize this. Unless you are, are physically incapable of going, you need to go. Jesus said, go. So you have to have a lot of boldness to look at Jesus in the face and say, no. All of us should go. What's another thing we can do? We can give. Paul, the missionary, asked for money and was supported. Barnabas asked for money and he was supported. Peter asked for money. He was supported. They had projects. They had objectives. They had things that needed to be done. They had no embarrassment in saying, hey, I, I, we need, this needs financial support. It's not that God's kingdom will rise and fall on other people's money. God can, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He can do what he wants. But that's how you involve yourself in the work of God across the world. You give. You sacrificially give. You find ways to support that financially. Again, the missions team is going to be providing, especially this week we're going to be talking about some things, ways that you can give and be a part of God's work across the world. Finally, what else can we do? We can pray. There's not one Christian, no matter how bad your health, there's not one Christian who can immediately start the habit of praying for our missionaries. Sign up for their missions newsletters. Sign up for Kevin's videos. Make sure and subscribe. Watch what God is doing, how the gospel is happening. Pray for these people. If they have family, pray for their families. Again, this is the reason that we're doing this whole conference is so that you can see you do have a part in the work of God across the world. Go, give, and pray like you never have before. Well, we do this. Why? Because Jesus told us to, which means it's a sin not to do these things. I'm not going to say it's a sin to not come to the conference, but it's pretty close. <laughs> if you can come, be a part. A lot of us, I mean, I'm going to make some announcements and maybe set up some chairs or something, but it's not like a big taxing thing on most of us. 
You have small children. We're doing the same thing for the children. There's a conference happening with the children. This is a starting point. I, I, I really think what's going to happen is this. Some of you will, will involve yourself in this work, and one day you yourself are going to be on the mission field, maybe as a helper or maybe even as a missionary. God will call you into the ministry. Now, this is a direct command from Jesus himself before he ascended, and it's something we should take seriously. And what we're going to find is if you do this, if you join this effort, you will find amazing joy. It will fill your heart with wonder and joy at what God's kingdom is doing across this world. An amazing, joyous blessing to joining God's people to do this, to declare, to declare His glory among the nations. Well, let's pray that we will join in this, and then we're going to have a time of the Lord's table. Father, we thank You so much for what You've given us. We pray, Lord, that You would indeed call us, all of us, Lord. There is that calling by Christ to be a part of this, and maybe we're not called as the missionary, the gospel preacher on some sort of gospel preaching effort, but Lord, we can help missionaries. All of us are called to do that. All of us are called to be a part of that. And so, Lord, we pray that we would go and that we would give, no matter how little we think we have. Lord, I pray that we would sacrifice for these things and that we would join in all the saints across the world who pray for missionaries as they take the gospel to a lost and dying world. Lord, we do again pray for those who don't know you. Perhaps they need to hear the message of Christ, Christ's life, His perfect life, a life that was lived righteously for them, a death paid the penalty for their sin, a resurrection that gives them power over life, uh, death and sin. I pray that they would trust in Jesus and follow Christ. All of us want to do this for your glory and for your kingdom come. Help us do this, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.